So um, this morning, I'm going to do something that I've done once here previously. I did it about a year ago, and I enjoyed it, uh, I must say. And I, I got some good feedback, uh, as well as some criticism from you guys. And what I'm going to do is, instead of reading out this passage and then doing a sermon, I'm going to combine the reading and the sermon into one talk. Do you remember when I did this the last time? No? All right. Well, clearly left an impression. So, uh, this might be new to some of you. Uh, essentially, I'll, I'll do the sermon by reading out the passage and I'll make comments as I go on, right? I'll start off with a few remarks and then I'll top off, top off the whole thing with some concluding remarks. So that's what I'm doing. And uh, it's crucial, then, if you can at all, have your Bible open in front of you. If, if, if you can't, you can't, that's fine, but if you can, do have it in front of you. And the passage is Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14. It's page 1043 in your pew Bible. <coughs> okay, Father, you speak through this. You always do. Help us to hear what you have to say. So, as you'll see in a second... This passage, I, I, I really wish I wasn't doing this passage on the first day of the new year, but nonetheless, you've got to go through it. And this passage talks a lot about the devil and demons. And I dare say your interaction with these ideas are minimal. Probably, I'm going to guess that none of you, for example, as happens here, uh, first encountered the Lord Jesus through the experience of being released from a demonic possession. No? Anyone? Nobody? No, I didn't think so. So you may say, well, this doesn't touch on anything in my life. So what does it have to do for me? You know, after the Christmas that I had, or the new year that I'm expecting, what, what does this have to say to me? Or more pointedly, you might say, Richie, how is this, you know, it's the new year. Why should I bother with this passage on today of all days? How does this talk of demons and the devil and the coming judgment be something of encouragement or assurance to me as I face into 2017. And you would have good reason to be searching for assurance because quite apart from whatever happened in your own life, 2016 was a year of, uh, well, a lot of bad things happened, didn't it? Um, lots of celebrities died. Politically, the far right is at its highest level in Europe since the end of World War II. It doesn't seem to be stopping its rise e either. The major world powers are not fighting each other directly, but they are on opposing sides of the conflict in the Middle East. You have 11 million people displaced from their homes in Syria, five of which have left the country and two of which are in Europe. And we had countless acts of mass murder, Florida, Brussels, a number of them in Turkey, including one again last night, and some in Pakistan, and then the other week in Berlin. Right? Now, I actually, maybe I'm a cynic, I don't know, and maybe I'm incorrect, but I'm of the opinion that peace and peacetime is the unusual status in history. So you could say, well, 2016 is no worse than any other years. But that's my own personal opinion. But it doesn't take away from the fact that we, and I, myself included, here, uh, feel heavy 
Um, some folk are worried. And it's perfectly valid to look for the Lord for hope and reassurance, even some answers during these times. But can we find them in this passage? In this passage which has the talk of things that we're not familiar with. Well, I think yes. Yes is the answer. And very briefly, what we see here is Jesus getting us to lift our eyes up and see the bigger picture. We should always have in our minds the bigger picture. But there are times when it is very appropriate to take a step back, to look up and around, to see our time, our location, our situation in their proper context. And the new year, I think, is a, is a perfect time for doing that. And so today, while we are not asking about exorcism, exorcisms, and the people in the passage are not asking about how do we live in this crazy world, the answer actually is the same. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. What he says he has done and what he says he will do. That's it. Hold these things close and you will walk through all and any storms that are thrown at you. Or that you find yourself in. So let's look at it. He starts off, verse 14, and we hear, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man who had been mute, uh, he spoke and the crowd was amazed. So the scene is set here with this first verse where clearly Jesus has come across someone that either he discerned was possessed by a demon or maybe he had asked for, been asked for help by this person's family and friends. Now stories of both of these types are found in the Gospels but in this instance all we're told is that Jesus is doing an exorcism. We don't hear anything about why he's doing it. And in this case it's a demon that has for whatever reason robbed its victim of speech and Jesus then drives it out. Upon which time the man starts to speak and the crowd are amazed. Now it's important to know that the crowd's amazement would not have been at the fact that he gave credence to the idea of demons. Belief in demons was an established part of Jewish life. And already in Luke's Gospel we see that Jesus has performed three such exorcisms and even his own disciples talk about doing them as well. The crowd's amazement here, as in those other three times, is that he does it so quickly with just a command and he's apparently successful at it. And this all despite the fact that he's, he's not a rabbi, he's just a man. So their amazement is wrapped up in what they have just seen and questions of, well, who is this guy? How does he do what he does? And for some, those questions are not coming from a, a good place. They're questions of skepticism rather than curiosity. And so it's no wonder that we read in the next two verses them saying, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him, asking him for a sign from heaven. Now, um, Beelzebub is a word that most people have heard of from the line that leads into the real head-banging part of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, you know. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me. For me. For me. <laughs> you know the bit? Maybe you don't, right? I don't know. But it's a biblical word as it happens. And where it comes from is the Jewish belief that the gods of the surrounding nations are actually demons in disguise. They got this belief from the Old Testament. And in there, 
one of the biggest problems God had with the Israelites was that they would go off and worship the gods of the surrounding nations, including one called Baal, which is where the word Beelzebub comes from. And in different texts in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 106, God equates their worship of these gods with the worship of demons. And in the New Testament as well, Paul is just as explicit about the true nature of false religions. He says, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So Baal, being one of the chief false gods of the surrounding nations, transforms into a word that they use to describe the prince of demons or the devil, as we would know. Right? No. Let me say one thing. It's a pretty bold statement, isn't it, that the gods of other religions are actually demons in disguise. But it's a standard, albeit conservative Christian understanding of other religions, that the people who practice those religions are not worshipping thin air, their prayers are not unheard, but in actuality they are being connected to spiritual forces through the rituals of their religion. This is one reason why, for example, I have no problem with doing public worship with Roman Catholic clergy. They're fellow Christians. They worship the same God. Yes, we've got deep disagreements with them, and those disagreements will put some boundaries on my activities with them, but we worship the same God. But the reluctance of some of my colleagues to engage in this is, I, I, I don't think it's helpful given our context, but I also think it's incorrect. But whereas I have no problem with that, it goes beyond the pale to engage in joint worship with the ministers of non-Christian religions. It's going to lose us points in the public sphere. It won't look good, but that don't matter. There is a fixed chasm between what we worship and what they do. That's not to say, by the way, as some of you have told me over the years, you shouldn't be scared of entering into temples or mosques or attending pagan ceremonies. Go if you want. I have. And when I'm there, I think I'm the most powerful person there. Because my prayers have been heard by the God of the world. This world. I don't take part, but I do pray. Anyway, Beelzebub is a name for the devil. And on the surface, uh, Jesus, who is saying that Jesus, who has just driven out a demon, is actually doing it by the power of the devil, is quite a cynical thing, at least, to say. But in fairness, there is some logic to it. Because, well, the devil and his boys are not exactly known for always being straight up, are they? Deception is part and parcel of their trade. So these folks who are questioning Jesus are thinking, well, maybe this Jesus fellow is just deceiving us. He's actually in league with our spiritual enemy, and he's only doing what he's doing here to get in our good books and then to use us in some way. So in one sense, it's a fair question. And then others are looking at what Jesus does and their reaction is a little bit different. They're not questioning how he does it. They're questioning themselves. They have just been presented with something that demands a positive reaction, but they don't trust their eyes. They want more proof. So they ask him for a sign from heaven. And again, actually this isn't as cynical as it first appears because, in matter of fact, the prophets of old often demonstrated their reliability by producing a miraculous sign. You can look at Deuteronomy 13 if you want to see that. And really the rest of this passage then is Jesus' attempt to answer both of these accusations. Is he a devil in disguise and 
prove to us that you actually are from God. Both of these questions then are actually seeking to undermine who he says he is. If he's a false prophet or if he's a devil in disguise, then most definitely he's not from God. He's definitely not the Messiah of the world. He answers then the first question as to whether he's a devil in disguise with the next three verses. He says, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. So Jesus' response here to the first question is actually fairly simple. He points out the straightforward logic that if he is driving out demons by the power of Satan, then that would indicate that Satan and his followers are fighting amongst themselves. But why would they do that? It makes no sense. It's of no strategic value whatsoever. In fact, if that is what's happening, then his kingdom will soon fall, and we know that he doesn't want that. And then Jesus makes an even more pointed argument. You who are questioning me have followers who also do exorcisms. If I'm using satanic power, what are they using? If you're going to blacken my name because of what I've done, how will your friends react when they hear what you said? So after making these fairly easy to make points and undermining the argument that Jesus is essentially from the devil, he then turns to explain the true origins of his ability to perform exorcisms. And so in verse 20 he says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, again, this phrase, the finger of God, is an Old Testament phrase. Uh, Remember the story about the Israelites leaving Egypt? Well, when God was trying to convince the Pharaoh to let his people go, he would display his power through amazing events, amazing things. Aaron's staff turned into a snake. There was the ten plagues, etc. But for a while, everything that God did, the Pharaoh's magicians actually replicated it. And until they couldn't. And at which time they said, oh, this is the finger of God. And so just as God cleared the way for the deliverance of God's people using his extraordinary powers, here Jesus, the Son of God, is delivering people with his extraordinary powers. And Jesus uses this phrase, the finger of God, to point to that. And note, right, that he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't go into a long conversation about how his powers are actually from God. He just states it. I drive out demons by the finger of God, he says. Because you see, for Jesus, proving that he is God, it's not actually all that big on his agenda. He simply is God and acts accordingly. He wants people to believe in him straight away. Which is why he moves from saying that these exorcisms by the finger of God straight into equating that action with being proof of the presence of his kingdom. And as he goes on, you'll you'll hear the tone of his words, they they become somewhat negative. I think they're always negative, but it becomes more obvious. And the reason is that both of these groups are questioning his identity. Now the problem with this is not just their lack of faith, it's that they totally missed what was going on. The kingdom of God was here. Jesus was driving out demons, that should have alerted them to that. You see, we know 
that the Jews were waiting for a time when God would establish his rule on earth at the end of human history. This was an essential part of their belief. And the hope, that hope took different forms, but it shared an expectation that the Messiah would come and he would radically reshape the whole fabric of human affairs. And Jesus is claiming here that his exercise and activity is nothing less than an aspect of the arrival of this hoped-for kingdom. The hope of the future has now become present, and they were missing it. It was right in front of them, and they're blind. And so he continues with an explanation then of what is happening, and he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Now these words here are Jesus' way of describing what he has just done in the exorcism in relation to the coming of the kingdom of God. The strong man is Satan. His possessions are the people of God who are no longer following God. And Satan thinks he's safe, but instead along comes someone stronger. And that's putting him mildly. And attacks him and overpowers him and takes his possessions. So Jesus sees himself as Satan's attacker. His actions constitute him ransacking Satan's house and possessions. But instead of these actions being received with faith and appreciation, he is greeted with doubt and even some even question if he is working with the devil. It's no wonder that he's angry with them. Now, <coughs> excuse me, I should say... <coughs> That there can be no doubt here that Jesus is not just referring to exorcisms with this little parable, but to all of his work. And that's why we get the next verse. He says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And here, he's speaking in very broad terms. The work of taking the possessions of the strong man is not limited to exorcisms, but to all of the miracles, to all of his preaching, and to all of the care that he performed. And as I said a second ago, Jesus has been challenged here on some pretty fundamental things with regard to his identity and his mission, and to the significance of those actions. The Jews who are listening to him should have seen that his actions were a sign that the promised kingdom of God had come. But instead, they were being silly at best, and dangerously unbelieving at worst. Jesus had a job to do of bringing people back into his kingdom. You are either with him or you are not. And if you weren't with him, there was no neutral group. You weren't if you weren't behind him, then no matter how indifferent you were to him, you were actually working against him. And this kind of exclusive statement that Jesus makes, it's not uncharacteristic of him either. Every now and again he makes these categorical statements about faith in him. There, there is no alternative. He's the only way to God. And I suppose the thing to say here is that Jesus is attacking this idea of people who are neutral to him. No one is neutral, he's saying. Indifference to him doesn't equate to being his friend in some distant way. In fact, indifference to him is the same as opposition to him. And... Um, I learnt a new word recently, FOMO. Any of you hear of it? FOMO? FOMO? What? No. Fear of missing out. It's an acronym. 
And apparently it's something that young people suffer from where they get paralyzed into doing nothing when it comes to decision making because when you make one choice to do something, you automatically don't do something else. So they end up choosing nothing. They just get their full mode, they're like stopped. They want to have it all basically. And I've also met quite a lot of people whose attitude to Jesus and his church is kind of a one foot in, one foot out approach. Like, you know, you come to church even regularly, but you're not quite ready to say and to act like you believe Jesus is Lord yet. And then lastly, within the broader culture, there is a massive reaction to the idea that salvation is only found in Christianity and that other religions, whatever good may be found in their beliefs and practices, actual reconciliation with God is not possible through them. People hate this idea. Sometimes I struggle with it myself. And look, if you're in any of those groups, listen to what the Lord is saying here. You've got to make a choice for Him and Him alone. If you're not with Him, if you're not working with Him, then you're against Him. And in fact, not only are you against Him, you're a scatterer. You disperse people in a direction away from God. That leads us then to the next section. He says this little parable. Verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Now, I found this, uh, these verses a little jolting. You know, he's, he's still talking about demons and the like of that. But at first glance, you wouldn't be sure why he includes it here. And on its own, it seems to be a tale of warning that even if you do get an exorcism, there is a possibility it might happen again. But why, why would he tell that story here? And the best I can come up with is that it is that as he is talking to folk that do believe in exorcisms, but also are at odds with himself, Jesus is making the point that those who perform these rituals apart from him or apart from belief in him, they do so in a way that renders them non-permanent. So just as he was saying that if you're not with him, you're against him, this extends even to those who do good things like exorcisms. It doesn't really matter even if you do do good. If you do it for reasons other than for allegiance to Jesus, you are still scattering. Your work is not, in the end, bringing people into the kingdom of God where the real healing takes place. And this is backed up by the next verse where he says, A woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You see, here Jesus is stating explicitly that he has been articulating for the duration, some some of the ideas that he's been articulating for the duration of this conversation. The only thing that matters is putting your faith in God and living in accordance with what you've heard. It doesn't matter what you do, even if you're doing good. It doesn't matter who you are, even if you're Jesus' mother herself. All that matters is that you have a faith in God that moves you to obedience. Trust me and act accordingly, Jesus says. Nothing else matters. No, let me say, 
with this. It's a bit of a sidetrack, but I'll say it anyway. 2017 is actually the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. Did you know that? Nah. Well, it is. And I suppose I couldn't pass by this apparent slight to Mary without comments, given it is the year it is. The thing is, if you mention this verse to any Roman Catholic, they should, if they're sharp anyway. You know, if you mention them and say, Ah, look, you see, Mary, look at this verse here, what do you think of that? If they were anywhere good, they'd be able to point out that, well, yes, this would appear to be problematic for our understanding of Mary, but you know what the very next line says, don't you? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Could that not be construed as a problem for your understanding of justification and salvation? The point I want to make is that fights over doctrine and practice between Catholics and Protestants are very well travelled. Some of you know that better than I do. And I don't think that we will see mass conversions in either direction this year. I mean, who knows, right? Maybe. We'll all become Catholic. I don't know. It'll be interesting. But I wouldn't let all of that put you off talking about these things. I've, I've never understood the fear people have of discussing their beliefs. So here's a challenge for you, right? You can use the excuse of it being the anniversary of the Reformation if you wish. Ask yourself, what would it take for me, not me, Richie, but you, to become a Roman Catholic? What would you have to go through to do that? Because that's what they were thinking of back in the Reformation. And then, sometime this year, ask your Catholic neighbours or friends, what would it take for them to join a Protestant church? And then come back to me and Christoph and tell us what happens. Seriously, do it. Anyway, that's only an interesting side note. The main point here, is, as I said, is that Jesus is only concerned about faith in God and living in accordance with that faith. Not who you are and not what you've done, but faith in God. And it's now then that it returns to the other question that was asked of him at the start. And the request for a sign so as to prove himself. And in verse 29 he says, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none would be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Excuse me. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now, you would want to be tone deaf not to hear Jesus' feelings here. As I've been saying all along, he's not happy with the questions he's getting. He's not happy with their very apparent lack of faith, not just in him, but in the clear significance of his actions. It's one thing not to believe someone's words, but when they're doing things like driving out demons in front of you and you still don't believe, that's inexcusable. And here his anger reaches its height, at least in this moment. There are two references here, first to Nineveh and Jonah, and the second to the Queen of the South. They both actually have the same effect. Jonah preached judgment and the necessity of repentance to the Ninevites, And the Queen of the South heard what God had to offer through King Solomon 
and travelled far to get it. Together, these two stories show that the proper response to hearing God's word is to respond to it positively. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. The Queen of Sheba sought out the preaching of Solomon. How much more should these people who are listening to Jesus, the very Son of God, seek to follow what he asks of them? But instead, they look for clarification, they question his identity, and they even question if he is a good force. There is only one common thing that is coming to them, and that is judgment. No. As I said at the start, this passage gets us to see the bigger picture. But you might be thinking, well, how does it do that, Richie? It's a screed against people who are not believing in Jesus. I believe. What does it have to do with me? Well, let me say three things. Firstly, I know that I've broadened out the definition of what constitutes being against Jesus. But don't miss an obvious, very obvious application of these words. Those who conduct evil in this world will receive a just reward from God. I was only reading the other day that the new second in command of ISIS is a Christian raised man from Texas, of all places. He will face God someday if he doesn't repent and be judged according for what he has done. As will the leader of any group that is currently at war that does not conduct himself as the way that God wants him to. For those, judgment covet. Secondly, I'm about to say something that the bigger picture is Jesus promises a coming judgment for the world and the only way to escape it is to have faith in him. And as such, all our concerns here are relativized by that reality. Now I know that you have heard this before. Some of you have been hearing it since you were born. And I'm going to say it again, don't get me wrong. But what I don't want you to hear from me is that I am advocating for some sort of pie in the sky, don't be bothered to try, so we're all going to die, are you not full of joy? You know, where you basically say, well, forget about the world and trying to do goodness. It's all meaningless twaddle when we know we're going to heaven. No, 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 no. Quite apart from the fact that doing good is commanded on nearly every page of the Bible itself, belief in a guarantee of heaven through faith in Jesus should have the opposite effect of making us live lives of grateful reaction to what he's done. We love because he first loved us. If your salvation makes you sit back and think, I'm grand now, I don't have to do anything about the condition of the world around me, I'll just look after my own till Jesus comes back, you've missed the point. And dare I say it, you may be in for a shock when he does come back. And then lastly, the point I was making at the very start, that this passage has something for us to hear in 2017. Right? So, let's say, right, Worst case scenario, the war in Syria gets awful and the major powers of the world are drawn into battle with each other and El Presidente Trump picks up the red phone and he says to the general, 
push the button. You need to hear me say that even if that were to happen, it would not be the most defining thing in your life. History revolves around five events. Three of them have already happened. Creation, the fall, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And two are yet to happen. His return and the judgment of all men. Whatever 2016 has given us and 2017 will give us. Whatever. That's not our main reality. Yes, it has tremendous effect on us. But our history is not determined by what we read in the papers. And our future is already written. Let yourself be shaped by that reality and not just what happens in the world around us. Let's pray. Father, I ask simply that you take this word and make it real to our hearts. Enable all of us to trust you despite the great darkness that our world is in. And help us to do good when we are scared. Maybe even especially when we are scared. Amen. We're going to sing a song now.